All right. How are we? Great. Good. Hey, if you've got a Bible, grab it. Turn two places. I think we have a slide for this, Tim. Two places. Genesis chapter 32 and Acts chapter 6. One is in the first book of the Bible. One is in the fifth book of the New Testament. So one at the beginning of the Bible, one at the end. No shame in using the table of contents. We'll be going back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament written by the people of God before Jesus came. The New Testament written by the people of God after Jesus came. Uh, we're going to be looking at both as we've been doing through this whole series entitled... Um, when God shows up, we're looking, is there a pattern between old and new? Is there a pattern that actually is still active today? What are the patterns when God shows up? So exciting today. So glad that you're here. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, I think, I don't know if I said it, on the end of your row, have somebody pass that down to you so you can see the text for yourself. This is God's gift to us, his word. Uh, and today we get to talk about rustling. Pretty fun. Rustling's fun. I wrestle all the time with my four-year-old son, Grayson. In fact, lots of times he's just literally waiting for me to get home so he can wrestle with me. And uh, why, why is this? Why does he love to wrestle so much? Uh, great question. Rustling's intimacy. Um, I don't know if little girls are this way. Uh, I know little boys are because I only have boys. But they love hand-to-hand -hand combat because it means dad's home, he's near, I can touch him, I can feel him, dad's home. The kind of relationship that's built through wrestling is amazing. And if you didn't know this, I'm bigger than Grayson, and so I could probably crush him if I wanted to, but I don't. <laughs> but I do wrestle, and there are times when I put the fear of dad into him. I give him a little shot just so he knows dad's got power. But Grayson also fights back. And when I give him that little extra power, he always does the same thing. <laughs> claws at me. When did kids learn to claw? We don't even have pets. So he claws at me, and sometimes he leaves his scratches on my eyes. Now, I don't actually mind this because guess what happens? The next day... I'm at work, I'm missing my family, and I feel the pain of the scratch, and I remember my boy, and then I get to wrestle again when I get home from work. See, wrestling's fantastic. There's something real about wrestling. So much better than video games. It's, it's, it's tactile. It's real. And guess what? God wants to wrestle with us. This is like the cool promise of Scripture. God wants to wrestle with us. And you don't need to be afraid. He knows he has more power than you, but he wrestles just up to the point that you know he's there, that you know he's real without crushing you. So we're going to look at two stories about wrestling. Actually, what I want to do today is tell you three stories of wrestling. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and one from the, the age of the church. So I'm going to tell you about three men all who wrestled with God and lived to tell about it, okay? And lived to tell about it. So Genesis chapter 32 is where we're going to start. And let me give you just a little bit of, of the backstory here because you have to understand where we're coming from. We're going to read about a man named Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Abraham 
is the one God gave the promise to in Genesis chapter 12, that through him and his offspring, a great nation would be made, a nation that would be holy and set apart so that God's glory and splendor could be seen by all the nations and people could come to him. So the great grandson of Abraham, who you may have heard of, this is Jacob. And Jacob has an interesting past before we get to chapter 32. He's a bit of a trickster, a scoundrel, actually. He's a twin. Uh, his twin brother is Esau. And Esau's actually born first. He's the firstborn. Um, but from the time of birth, uh, Jacob's been trying to take what is Esau's, his birthright. In fact, he's grabbing onto Esau's foot coming out of the womb, okay? So he's been a trickster his whole life, a manipulator, a thief. And the story goes on, and, and they're a little bit older, and uh, their father Isaac's about to die, and Jacob wants that birthright, wants that firstborn birthright, because that included inheritance and all these great things. And so, um, here's what he did. He tricked his brother. He told his brother, I'll give you my food, <laughs> his brother liked to eat, and, and, and you give me your birthright. His brother was not in a good place to be making these kinds of decisions. He was a little bit out of it. He was tired, and he was so hungry, and he gives his birthright to his younger brother. Well, that's not the end of it. It gets to the end of Isaac's life, and, and he's dying, and he's old, and he's blind, and uh, Jacob comes into the room to try to trick his dad to give him also the birthright. Esau's already said, I'll give it to you. Now he needs dad to say, it's yours. So what he does, his brother's quite hairy. And so he puts on some fake hair and he comes in. His dad can't see. And his dad uh, says, who is that? Who's that? He says, it's, it's me, dad. It's Esau. And his dad feels uh, Jacob's face with the fake hair. And he says, oh, it is Esau. Um, and he blesses Jacob instead of Esau. Well, Jacob's life goes on, and, 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 and Esau finds out what he's done, that he's stolen his birthright, and he's upset, right? He's big brother. He's hairy. He's probably very strong. And so Jacob does actually quite a wise thing, but a cowardly thing, and he runs away, and he runs into the countryside, and he ends up at his uh, uncle's house, and he sees his cousin. Times were different back then, and he falls in love uh, with her. Uh, her name was Rachel, and... Um, the story goes, I can't go into it. You just got to read Jacob's life. It's crazy. Uh, he, ends, he wants to marry Rachel, and he works seven years for Laban, his uncle, and, and then Laban tricks him. The trickster gets tricked and gives, gives Leah, his oldest daughter, to Jacob first, and Jacob's like, no, that's not who I wanted to marry. So again, times are different. He says, well, I'll work seven more years so that I can have your daughter Rachel. So he marries Rachel, so he's married to Leah, and he's married to Rachel, uh, and then he starts uh, tricking his uncle Laban, and he starts uh, painting uh, sheep so that he can take some of his livestock and he gathers much wealth and he accumulates much and then right before we get here he tries to sneak away with his now four wives and 11 children he tries to sneak away from Laban without saying goodbye without telling where he's going just taking all his wealth and Laban comes and runs after him and says don't don't just run away from me and 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 Jacob thinks wow I've been caught. Well, things turn out well, and Laban actually lets him go, and, and this is where we get to the story. So I tell you all that to say this is the man that Jacob was, a trickster, a manipulator, a liar, not necessarily what you would think to be a great example of what it means to be a man, but such are most of us. But something happens here. Something changes 
what he was before chapter 32 and what he is after chapter 32 are not the same. They are not the same. Although he has tricked his brother into giving him his birthright, and remember, the people of God are coming through this birthright in this family. He's tricked his dad into giving him the birthright. He's got 11 sons and one daughter, and so he's been blessed with children. All of this is something real. He has been chosen. It is part of God's plan, but he is not the man ready to take the nation of Israel forward. You could say it this way. As Jacob is on the precipice of receiving his promised inheritance, because now he's left his uncle Laban, who was in a a distant land, and he's coming back to the land of Canaan, and that was the land that was promised to his great-grandfather Abraham, and he's going to take that now because God has promised it. Even though he's on the precipice of receiving this inheritance, he is not morally ready. He is not spiritually ready to bear the weight of God's promise in his life. Why? Because he must possess his own faith, obtaining his own blessing through a personal encounter with God. Heredity alone is not enough. He believes in God, he knows God, God has been speaking to him, but it's because of the promises made to his father and to his grandfather. Jacob himself has not been transformed by a personal encounter with God. So it is with many of us. Maybe you're in that place. You've been living off the fumes of your father or your mother's faith. At some point in your life, it has to become your own. It will not last unless you have a personal encounter with God, unless God shows up in your life. Doesn't matter how many generations have been Christian for you, you have to know God. You're just like Jacob. And what we're about to read is his moment where he meets God face to face. Right before this happens, <laughs> this is so amazing. Right before this happens, Jacob does something. If you're looking in, in, in chapter 32, uh, you can see it here. Jacob um, is fearful. He's fearful. He's coming back into the land with all of his servants and wives and children. Uh, He has many people in his employ and uh, much livestock and wealth, and he's coming, and um, he knows his brother lives near. Remember the brother that he ran from 20 years ago, and he's scared of his brother. And so what he does is he ends up sending out servants with gifts to his brother, He's like coming into town and he's like, if I can just pay my brother off, maybe he won't hurt me. Okay? Again, trying to manipulate the situation, control the situation. And so he sends men out in all directions because he doesn't know exactly where his brother is. He wants them to meet him first to soften him up before he comes face to face with his brother. And he does an interesting thing right right, uh, before uh, what we're going to read in chapter 32. He prays. Now, why why is that such a strange thing? If you just read through the book of Genesis, you do not see much uh, recorded prayer. But Jacob prays. Why is that important? 
Well, he does believe in God. He believes God is there. He believes God has blessed him. If you read the prayer, you can read it on your own. He believes uh, that God is powerful and can protect him. So he believes true things about God. But the reason that I know that his heart isn't truly changed is what happens right after he prays. He both sends out more servants in front of him to act as a buffer because now he's heard that Esau has with him 400 men because some of the servants that he sent out earlier come back and say, we met Esau, we gave him your gift, and he's got 400 men. Well, if your brother's coming with 400 men, you're not thinking he's come to, coming to hug you. So he's terrified, and he still sends, even after he's prayed for God's protection, he still sends out men. Not only that, right before the night we're about to tell you about, he takes his wives and his children across the river with all of his stuff and puts them in front of him as a barrier, and then he retreats behind the river line. (laughs) This is the kind of man he is. Self-protection. Even he's... Why would he send his uh, wives and children out there? No, no brother, no matter how angry he is, he's not going to take out my wife and kids. He'll probably see them, and his heart will be softened so that when he meets me, he'll act favorably with me. So that's all happening here. And Jacob goes back across the river, takes his wife and family uh, uh, to, to one side, and he goes to the other side, and he sleeps there this night. And this is where I want you to pick it up with me. Chapter 32, verse 22. I'll read the first part about him taking his wives so you know I'm not lying to you. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, those were mother, uh, mothers of his other children. He had wives or children with four women and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Uh, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And this is where it gets weird. And a man rustled with him until the breaking of the day. A man shows up and just picks a fight with him randomly. It's dark. No electricity back then. It's dark. A man shows up and they rustle all night long until the sun comes up. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched His hip socket, that's the hip socket of Jacob, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go. This is the man talking to Jacob. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This might not seem like a profound moment, but for the first time in Jacob's life, he gets it. And I'll explain why. Let's keep reading. I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? This is verse 27. And he said, my name is Jacob. Then he said, that's Jacob said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven or wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob said to him, Please tell me your name. But the man said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face 
to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Or you could say, my life has been spared. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the, of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob. That's God touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Do you see what's happening here? A mysterious man shows up, rustles with Jacob, cannot prevail. Jacob shows great courage, bravery, perseverance. He does not give up. Jacob's becoming a man, and, 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 and you'd think, oh, it's just his physical strength. No, it's when he realizes what's happening. Jacob says, what's your name? Jacob knows his name. He knows that he's wrestled with God, which is why the man doesn't even need to answer. He's wrestled with God, and he realizes that God is the one whose blessing he truly needs. Not, not his brother giving it to him, not his father giving it to him. He needs God's blessing on his life to move forward. And in this moment of wrestling, in this moment the strange moment of wrestling with God in human form. This is truly God in human form. Uh, theologians will call this a Christophany, meaning a pre-incarnate uh, incarnation of Christ, that God comes and wrestles with Jacob. Real wrestling, not just a dream, not just, this is really God in the flesh wrestling with Jacob. In this moment, Jacob knows that he's seen God face to face. And he's profoundly changed. He's profoundly changed. You say, well, it doesn't seem that he's changed. He's still trying to get a blessing. No, he's profoundly changed because he knows blessing is not something you can take or steal. Blessing is something that God can only give to you. It's hard for us to slow down and read it slow enough to see what's going on here. But Jacob, the light of his soul, you could say, is awakened and he realizes it doesn't matter how hard he fights, how much he tricks, how much he steals. Only in this life will you be truly blessed if God chooses to give you his blessing. It's a fantastic moment. Some commentators have called this the violent presence and darkness of Peniel, where God and Jacob wrestled. Now, did you notice what God changes his name to? We've talked about this in past sermons. God gives us a new identity when he shows up in our lives. Well, he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. There's still a nation in the world today on the map called Israel. And that all happened in this profound moment where God says, you will be called Israel. And so Jacob's 11 sons, and then after this event, he'll have his 12th son, Benjamin, birthed. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel and in this fantastic moment, the thing that uh, allows Jacob to receive the blessing of God is Jacob wrestling with God. Why? So the name Israel literally means to wrestle with God, meaning to be the people of God, we are those who get to wrestle with God. Why the wrestling? Now, it's fascinating because he's victorious, right? Jacob's victorious. So does he get the blessing because he out-wrestles God? 
The answer is no, because Jacob is profoundly humbled in his victory. So what's going on? Here's what I think is going on. Jacob, if you just know his story, has always been associated uh, with a certain amount of physical strength. So grasp, I mean, you got to be a strong kid to grasp your twin's uh, ankle and get pulled out at the same time as him in childbirth, right? So we have all these stories of him being strong. So he's grasping the heel of Esau. You can read about that in chapter 25. Um, He moves heavy stones to water Rachel's sheep. Uh, you can read that in verse, uh, chapter 29. Um, he works the herds of Laban, his uncle, for years and years in very difficult conditions. He's a strong man. He's known for his strength. He's known for his cunning and his wit. That's just the story of Jacob. And even though on this day Jacob has physical victory, perhaps it is that he is victorious. He has physical victory, but yet he asks for a spiritual blessing. That it's this moment that's his maturing moment. That he does not ask God for anything material. He asks God for something spiritual, a blessing. So when this strong man, when this man who has made much wealth for himself, when he has always controlled situations, when he has always um, outthought the opponent and outwrestled the opponent, in this moment when for the first time he realizes that physical and mental victories are nothing compared to the true blessing of God, in this moment he's become a true man of God. Do you see that? Again and again and again, when men of God or women of God realize that the things that they have accumulated The titles, the money, the power are nothing compared to the blessing of God, to knowing God, to being with God face to face. That is our maturing moment where we've truly grasped what it means to know God. Um, We're going to talk, our second person we're going to talk about is the Apostle Paul. I just want to uh, throw up a, a verse here that it's one of my favorite verses. It says this. Apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians, in his letter to the Philippians. He says this, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So we're going to read about Paul here in a second. This is the same thing that's happening to Jacob. In this moment, he realizes, even though he's won the physical battle, that what he truly is missing in life is the blessing and presence of God with him at all times. Not just momentary influxes, but with him at all times. And he gets that. It's unbelievable. Jacob realizes that although he's won a victory It is only apparent in nature because he knows, even though he won, he knows the power of God while he wrestled with him. How how do I I know that? Uh, Look back with me again at chapter 32. Look what he says in verse 30. He says this, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. 
Well, I thought you won. I thought you strived with him all night and he couldn't overtake you. No, he knows. He knows the true story. He knows, because he's wrestled with God, that at any moment, God could crush him. And yet, he spared his life. Jacob finally becomes a man on this day. No longer running from his responsibility, but taking his responsibility seriously. There's a real change in his life. And you see that change very clearly if you're just reading through the narrative in the very next thing that Jacob does, right? Because what did we see in, ver- in chapters 21, or 31 and 32? We see him sending people out in front of him to meet Esau to be that buffer. If you just read on in chapter 33, what you see is morning comes, Jacob runs to be with his family, and he goes and does eventually meet up with his brother Esau, but he runs out in front of his family, and he's the first to meet Esau. Again, you might not pick that up if you're just reading. That is such an important part of this narrative. He's changed. He's no longer hiding, but he's out front taking responsibility for his family and his children and his servants, and he meets his brother Esau face to face. He still doesn't know what Esau's going to do to him. Esau has every reason and all power, 400 men, to take Jacob's life, but he knows and he trusts God in a new way, and he doesn't cower, but he takes responsibility. He takes, he takes the lead. He puts himself in danger first. Why would he do that? Look at, look at verse uh, 11 of chapter 33. Look at verse 11 of chapter 33. This is at the very end of his encounter with Esau. So he gets to Esau. He still doesn't know what's happening. And Esau greets him kindly. And, and they hug. And, and Jacob bows down. And he says, you know, have mercy on me. Forgive me for what I've done to you. And Esau says, I forgive you. Who are these people? These are my children. God has blessed me. So he's very um, giving God all the credit and the glory, and he says, but I still want to give you a gift, Esau, not to appease your anger, but just because I care for you and I love you. And Esau says, I don't need that, I don't need that. He says, please take it from me. Now, verse 11 says this, please, this is Jacob speaking to Esau, or Israel speaking to Esau, accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. He urged his brother, and his brother takes his gift. Do you see that? Please accept my blessing because God has dealt graciously with me. I have enough. This is a changed man. This is a changed man. He understands now that God has spared his life, that God has given him profound grace, and he wants to bless his brother, not to save himself, but to bless his brother. This is unreal. Now, I think there's a ton of gospel implications to this that I'll just mention here before we go on to the Apostle Paul. Here's what I want to say. Think about his dislocated hip. Think about him limping now. That moment, so in, in, why does God do that? What's the point of breaking his hip and dislocating it? Well, he wants Jacob to know that he could have crushed him. <laughs> That's why he breaks his hip. So he dislocates it. He says, yes, I've wrestled with you all night. I've allowed you to wrestle with me. We've had this intimate moment. We've seen each other face to face. Our relationship is like it's never been before. But I want you to know that I could have done this with your life. I'll just do it with your hip. It's the reminder to him of God's true power. 
if you don't understand the power of God and the wrath of God and, and what's actually due your rebellion against God, if you don't understand that power, you will not understand God's grace in your life, that he has spared you, that he has delivered you. If you just think God's kind of just trying to win you over or even just wrestle with you a little bit, you need to understand the power and the wrath of God in order to appreciate his grace in your life. That's why he dislocates his hip, because he wants him to know, don't, don't, don't forget, just with a touch of your socket, your hip could be displaced. Think what else I could do, but yet I will not. I will give you a blessing instead. That's the gospel. Instead of getting what we deserve, which is complete dislocation from God's green earth, removal, wrath, God doesn't just not give us that. He pours that out onto his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and gives us a blessing instead. Do you see that? But unless, if you downplay what happened on the cross and think it was just an example of love, of dying for your friends, you're missing it. The power of God dislocated his son from his presence. The eternal son and the eternal father were separated just like Jacob's hip was separated from the socket for you. And he gives you a blessing. That's grace. Don't forget about the power of God just because you get to wrestle with him. Is that making sense? Don't. It's great when Grayson wrestles with me, but there's moments where I have to remind him of my power. Don't think that God's just a wrestling partner. He's God, and he's choosing to wrestle with you because he loves you, not because he can't overtake you. Okay. That's the story of Jacob, the first great wrestling story in all of Scripture, but it's not the last. So turn now to, if you've got it marked there, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, and here is a story, so we're asking the question, for Jacob, even though he had this heredity of being uh, one of God's people, he still had to have an encounter with God, God had to show up in a real personal way in his life, and when he did, he was reoriented, he was not the same man that he was before Everything inside of him was reoriented by his encounter with God, and he is changed. Let's look at the apostle Paul, who, when we see him in this text, is still going by his Hebrew name, Saul. And for the rest of the book of Acts, uh, he is referred to as Paul, which would be his Greek name. There's some debate about why he changes his name. I think I've got an answer for you, but stay tuned. So here's a man, Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He went to the best colleges for being uh, basically a keeper of the law of God, a very religious man, very intellectual, top of his class, uh, studying under one of the great teachers of the day in Israel. And Jesus comes onto the scene, lives and dies, and, and apparently is 
resurrected and all of his followers are going around telling people that Jesus is resurrected and this new sect of Judaism called the Way, which we now call Christianity, rises up and Saul, being so vigilant for God, says, I must crush this false sect and he begins going around and participating in the imprisonment and the killing of Christians. This is Saul. This is who we're going to read about here. He is devout. He studies his scripture. He prays. He loves God. He comes from a long line of strong Jewish men. He is, for many, their highest example of a religious man. Just a few chapters before Acts 9, we see him standing at the martyrdom of Stephen and the people who stone Stephen to death bring their cloaks and lay them at Paul's feet. Why do they do that? Because Paul was the example of what it meant to be a righteous Jewish man. And they wanted to say, Paul, do you give us your approval? And Paul is saying by his silence, yes. So Paul goes, he asks can I go up to Damascus to a town in northern Israel and can I round up some more Christians and imprison them up there? And the high priests send Saul and say, yes, go. Let's put an end to this Christian nonsense, this resurrected Jesus nonsense. And so they send him towards Damascus and he's on his way and this is where we pick it up. In chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1, it says this, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise now and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and, op uh, and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now from here, you may know of Paul. Saul becomes Paul, and he becomes the great evangelist to the world. And he takes the gospel to the Greeks and to the Romans. And we would not be here today without Saul who became Paul, but this was his moment of change. This was his moment that ultimately would lead him to writing the words we read about all things being garbage. Actually, the better translation is dung compared to knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. In this moment, God shows up in his life and just Bobby Boucher's him, just straight up tackles him to the ground. We don't know how it happened. Paul doesn't even know how it happened. He just all of a sudden is struck back and falls to the ground 
as the light and the glory of Jesus Christ appears to him. And he sees face to face this risen Jesus. Jesus is not dead. He is very much alive. What could account for somebody going from murdering Christians to being the leader of the Christian sect? Well, God showed up and said, stop doing that and start doing this. He is completely reoriented. He still uses all of his intellect and his gifts, all of his understanding of the scriptures, but now he sees, because he's encountered Jesus, that he has been seeing it wrong. And how interesting it is that in order to see, God blinds him. For three days, he cannot see. And he doesn't know if he'll ever see again. We read it pretty quick. He thinks, I may be blind for the rest of my life because I've seen the glory of Jesus Christ resurrected. This is un unreal. Just like Jacob, Paul had won many victories in his life as a Pharisee, but something changes him so profoundly that he reorients his entire life to the point of dying himself to tell people that Jesus is alive. His actions are reoriented, his theology is reoriented, his community is reoriented, and his geography is reoriented. Everything changes. And he starts to call himself Paul instead of Saul. Now, he doesn't have an encounter where God says, you'll no longer be called Saul, you'll be called Paul. He probably had both of those names his whole life, being that he was from a Greek town as a Jewish man, so Paul, Paul would be his Greek name. Uh, but it's interesting that he chooses to, to talk about himself as Paul instead of Saul. Here's why I think Saul is a Hebrew name, and, and Paul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. The first king ever of Israel is a guy named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was a big dude. He was powerful and strong, which is why the people of Israel picked him to be their king. Do you know what Paul means in the Greek? Little. Small. So instead of being associated with this idea of Saul, the powerful Benjamite, to being Paul, small, little. Why do you think that is? Because he knows that compared to the glory of Jesus Christ, he is small and little. <laughs> I think that's why he changes his name and says, please don't call me Saul. Paul sees God face to face and his identity is completely reoriented. Now, I want to tell you about this third person. And, and he comes after the apostles have all died. He's coming in the fourth century A.D., so several hundred years after, his name is Augustine, St. Augustine. And he is another man who late in his life, all these men have this experience late in their life, like not as teenagers, like we're talking all of them over the age of 30, have this profound reorientation of their life. So don't give up on men or women who are older and have not yet come to the faith. These men... Maybe the three, three of the most important men in the story of God all came to faith after the age of 30. Augustine, if you don't know who he is, profoundly shaped West, the Western world. Not, not just Christianity, the Western world and how we think. He grew up as a young boy in North Africa, which was a part of the Roman Empire. And he was a learned man. He was very intelligent, uh, but he didn't like school. He was very rebellious. And he grew up and, and 
got great grades but didn't really like school, and he got into uh, alcohol and sex. He was very promiscuous. Uh, he liked to party, like just to be honest. You can read about him. He really, he talks about this in his confessions. He, he loved to party, and um, he actually ends up taking a girlfriend uh, early in life and lives with her for 15 years and has a son with her but never marries her. Most likely uh, because she was from a different social caste than him, and so it was forbidden. Um, but, but he lives a very rough, hard life, all while rising the ranks of the intellectual circles of the Roman Empire. He gets caught up, caught up in a religious movement that was sort of an offshoot of Christianity called uh, Manichaeism. Um, and it's kind of this weird hodgepodge of Christianity and the Roman gods and uh, it's a, it really drew him in. It was all about secret knowledge and is very mystic in a sense. And he was sort of uh, enamored with it, but eventually becomes disenchanted by it when he meets uh, one of the top theologians, so to speak, of Manichaeism. And he's just trying to find his way. Well, all the while he's rising the ranks and he becomes the orator of the Roman Empire. He's working personally for the emperor um, in Milan. And he's giving speeches, and he's teaching uh, rhetoric at the university there in Milan. And so he's risen to the very highest levels of society. Well, all the while, his mother had been a Christian, and she'd been praying for him. Her name was Monica, and, and waiting, hoping, and praying, and trusting that God would eventually capture his heart. And so she introduces him to the bishop of Milan, uh, whose name is uh, St. Ambrose, and so he's a very powerful man uh, in the world at that time. And uh, his mom sends, uh, so you've got two powerful men, St. Ambrose and the Order of the Roman Empire, um, Augustine. And, and so Monica wants to get some uh, questions answered about Christianity from St. Ambrose. So she sends Augustine to go ask him these questions. And so they develop a friendship, Ambrose and Augustine, and they just talk about things, mainly the things that Monica wants to know about. So Augustine goes, I think it's a fascinating story how mothers work in the lives of their sons. Um, and so Augustine is learning about Christianity. He's learning from the top bishop of the day. And uh, he says this, he quotes this, he says, this is after, spoiler alert, he becomes a Christian, uh, but he said this, for I had my back towards the light and my face towards the things on which the light falls, so that my face, which looked towards the illuminating things, was not itself illuminated. You see what he's saying there? He's talking to uh, one of the top uh, theologians in the world, truly a man of God, St. Ambrose, but what he's saying is, even though I was talking, I was hearing about these things, I was not seeing them face to face, I was seeing them as they reflected against the wall. Interesting. Jacob was the same way, wasn't he? He knew about God and what God had done and the blessings of God, but he wasn't seeing God face to face. Neither was Augustine. He was looking towards the illuminated things, but was himself not illuminated. So he develops this deep intellectual friendship with Ambrose, and he realizes in this moment that Christianity is not anti-intellectual like he had thought. And it actually is not contrary to reason. It's quite reasonable, and he understands that for the first time. But he's still not a Christian. He just has a new reverence and respect for Christianity. Then another thing happens. 
Remember this woman who he loves, who's the mother of his son. Well, she is forced to move back to North Africa because they cannot get married, because he is a man of high estate and she is a, a woman of low state in the society. And this profoundly broke his heart. He writes about this in his confessions. He was profoundly disoriented by the loss of his love. And he doesn't know what to do. Well, then another thing happens. There was a, another heresy in the church called Arianism that taught that Christ was not actually God in the flesh. And the mother of the emperor, Justinius, she wanted the church, the Roman Catholic church, to become Arian. And St. Ambrose, the, the most powerful a man within the church, did not. He wanted to protect the church. And so there's this epic standoff outside the church in Malone, the basilica there, where, <laughs> this is a fascinating story, St. Ambrose um, is in there and he holds a worship service because he knows that the mother of the emperor is sending the army to come confiscate the basilica as kind of a way of saying, we have the power now in the church. And, but he also knows that they're reverent to the fact that they will not take the building when worship is happening. So he calls everybody to come worship. Much of the city is there worshiping in the basilica. And uh, Ambrose goes, he just starts filibustering, basically. He literally starts preaching all day long because he knows as long as the worship service goes, they cannot take this building. You ever wonder why I preach so long? It's because of St. Ambrose. We don't want people to take the building. We've got it, okay? Now, at the same time, Monica, Augustine's mother, is in the building while the Roman army is surrounding it. So her life is at risk. Ambrose's life is at risk. Yet he will not give in to the mother of the emperor and the, the holy Roman army. He stands firm. And eventually, the army disperses. And the church is saved. And so here you have Augustine, who works for the emperor and for the mother of the emperor. So he's conflicted, but he sees the character of Christianity. So now he has a reverence for the intellectual reasonableness of Christianity. He has a reverence for the character of Christianity. I've never met a man like this. And he has a desire, a true desire, for the existential helpfulness of Christianity because his, his heart hurts. He's lost the love of his life. But yet, at this point, he's not yet a Christian. And he writes in his confessions that at this point, he left to a country villa to take a vacation, and he brings all of his philosopher friends because he thinks, for him, the life of the mind is refreshing, and he thinks, I'll bring them all together, and we'll have a retreat, and we'll be in the countryside, we'll get away from all this. And he says that my soul was sick. He says, I'm so, I was so soul sick as I was out at the retreat, even though I was surrounded by all of my friends and, and we were having great conversation about philosophy, my soul was sick and he goes into the garden outside the villa and he begins to wrestle with God. He's so distraught. He's so worked up. And all of a sudden, he hears a child's voice saying, tole legai, tole legai. Tole lega. And he's thinking to himself, are they playing a children's game? Where, where is that from? Tole lega, which is Latin for take up and read. And he comes to the conclusion that there is no, he knows of no game, he knows of no children's story that, that, that just keeps repeating, take up and read, take up and read. And he believes that it's God speaking to him. And he picks up 
the works of the Apostle Paul, and he begins to read. And he's profoundly changed. And he goes on to be, like I said, probably the most important theologian in the history of the church. He ends up being catechized, going through, learning the basics of the Christian faith, and then he's baptized in his 30s, and then he leaves his prestigious title and role as the orator of Rome, and he goes back to a small hometown just to become a humble small-town priest. Well, eventually, the people don't let him stay a priest, and he becomes the bishop in his uh, province, and he goes on to argue and fight against heresies across the Roman Empire, protecting and maintaining true Christianity and the true witness of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story, and it's true, and it's just like Jacob, and it's just like Paul, and it took him wrestling for many years with God, and here's the principle I want you to hear, this principle common to all of us, common to all of these men, that God always disorients so that he might reorient you hear that? God always disorients us so that he might reorient us. And God, in all these stories, he initiates. They didn't seek him first. He shows up in their life first to disorient them so that they might be reoriented to true knowledge and true faith. And this orientation is always painful. Jacob's hip was dislocated. Paul was blinded. Augustine's soul was sick, his heart was broken, his mind was reeling. You might lose a boyfriend, or you might lose a girlfriend, or a roommate, or a job, or a dream, or a sibling, and it's going to be so painful, and it's going to be confusing, and you're not going to know why God's allowing you to be disoriented, but he's doing it so that you might be reoriented, so that you truly can see him face to face. And if you let him in that moment, if you listen hard, you will hear his voice giving you his blessing if you surrender to him and his power in your life. This is how it always works when God shows up. He disorients you to reorient you. That is what wrestling is. The disorientation of God so that you might be reoriented. Men in the room, I want you to pay particular attention here. We've talked about a lot of great women of faith in this series. But men, I want you to hear this, okay? There's an epidemic of men not knowing how to be men. Listen to the lives of Jacob. Maybe you are more like Jacob. And women, this is for you too. But I I particularly want to just men to listen up. Sometimes men won't listen unless you call them out. Say, I want to wrestle with you, men. I want to wrestle with you. Then look for a man who's allowing himself to be reoriented by God. Maybe you're like Jacob. Maybe you were oriented towards physical strength and mental strength, and and maybe God wants to show up and reorient you towards spiritual strength. Maybe you're like Jacob and you're oriented towards self-protection, 
When God shows up in your life, he wants to reorient you towards protecting others. Maybe you're like Jacob and you're oriented towards the accumulation of wealth. God wants to reorient you towards generosity. Maybe you're like Jacob and you're oriented towards making excuses. God wants to reorient you to taking responsibility for your actions. Maybe you're oriented towards manipulation and lies. God wants to reorient you to straightforwardness and truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stop it. Maybe you're oriented towards cowardice and running every time things get hard. God wants to reorient you to perseverance, commitment, and long-suffering. Stop running. Maybe you're more like Paul. Maybe you're oriented towards self-righteousness. God wants to reorient you towards grace, that salvation is a gift, not something you can earn. Maybe you're oriented towards judgment and anger, like Paul. He wants to reorient you to mercy and forgiveness. Maybe you're oriented to tradition and rules. He wants to reorient you towards his presence and relationship with him. Maybe you're oriented towards this life and its titles. God wants to reorient you to humility and putting him first on your resume. Maybe you're like Augustine. Maybe you're oriented towards pleasure, to drink and drug, to sex and partying. God wants to reorient you to self-discipline and forsaking of your flesh. Maybe you're oriented, like like Augustine, towards man-made knowledge and wisdom. God wants to reorient you towards God-revealed wisdom and truth. Maybe you're oriented towards prestige. God wants to reorient you towards simple the simple life of faith. So I'll end with this. Have you wrestled with God? Have you wrestled with Him? Do you have the scars to prove it? Good. Praise God. They are your daily reminders. Every day Jacob woke up, he had that limp. He remembered what it was like to see God face to face. Paul, every morning he woke up and he wondered, could I see today? I know what it's like to be blind. And he opens his eyes and he remembers when God blinded him so that he might see. Augustine, every day he sees his son and he remembers the goodness of God. And Augustine got to be baptized with his son who came to faith as well. So cool. None of these men lived an easy life after this moment. They all lived profoundly challenging lives. And men, you need to hear this. Women, you need to hear this. Resolution is not God's end game. He does not show up in your life to resolve everything. He just shows up in your life so that you can know him and walk with him through the rest of your life. Jesus Christ is the face of God. Jesus Christ is the face of God. And Jesus Christ... This is what's so great. Jesus Christ wrestled with his dad for you. He, he said, Dad, I think we need to wrestle. And I think you need to pour out your true power on me. I think you need to crush me. So that my friends can live. I'm the only one that can really wrestle with you, Dad. And he did on the cross. And he took my sin 
and he was dislocated from the Father. He was crushed for me. And when I truly knew that, I was changed. I cannot go back to the life I once lived. It is garbage compared to knowing that love and grace of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you let God show up and transform you and reorient you to life with him? I pray that you do. So good. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus, for choosing to pour out your true power on him and not on me, so that I might live and be spared and walk with you. God, help me not to diminish that in my mind or in my heart. Help me to know what you have done for me. Help me to see it clearly. Help me to see you face to face. When I look at the cross and I see Jesus hanging there, help me to know that is your gift to me your gift of grace, a grace that I cannot earn, that I do not deserve, that I can never repay, but it's your gift of yourself from now until forever. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.